Welcome to the Corey Mila podcast, exploring stories and ideas about conflict, peace, theology, and art. Hello, my name is Padraig Tuma, and you're listening to the Corrie Mila podcast. With me today is poet, writer and academic Julianne Okot-Butek. Julianne has published essays and articles, creative nonfiction and four collections of poetry. She's assistant professor of English, gender studies and black studies in Canada at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. Julianne, you're very welcome to the Corrie Mila podcast. Thank you, Padraig. It's good to be here. It's good to be here. You and I know each other in, as friends and collaborating with each other. And so it's a great joy to be in conversation with you now about uh, the expanse of your work and the, the insight of your, of your life and your, your attention to the work in your life. And I wanted to start off by asking you a question to which I have no idea of the answer, to, which is, is there a particular friendship or experience in childhood, however small, that you look to and think that's been very influential for me in my adult life? Well, um, maybe I wasn't very small, but a, a friendship that I've carried along in my head for decades now is one that I had with a woman, or oh, now she's a woman, um, Phoebe. And our dads were friends, but we didn't know that when, when we were friends. And I absolutely loved this woman. And when we were girls, I absolutely loved her. Um, and... and uh, the, the, what I carry is a story about when they, we were in boarding school, first of all, I should say that. One day she said she was going to have a nap and she was going to go time traveling. And <laughs> so she wanted me to sit by her bed just in case someone came in the room and then she wouldn't be back in her body. And I sat there <laughs> terrified, terrified, um, hoping that nobody would come in. And nobody did. And I still think about how I was just watching for her to come back, waiting for her to come back. Um, yeah, so, so that's my memory of childhood I want to talk about. <laughs> what would you say, what, what's the influence of that on your adult life? I think probably what carries through is um, my, often my inability to tell the difference between something that's fiction and something that's not fiction. Um, uh-huh. So the terror of that moment was real while I was waiting, um, it didn't matter whether or not I believed that she was going to come back. Uh, yeah, and I often get lost in a story in the same way. Hmm. And I know, and we'll talk about this later on, I know that for you, the question of what truth is and how you work with truth in historical stories as well as in poetry and fiction, that um, you don't like to think that truth belongs to one and not the other. But we'll come to that, Noah. At the moment, okay. I'm just currently associating that I had a friend when I was younger who told me he was from a different planet and I totally believed him. <laughs> but that was more about being a gullible five-year-old than anything else. <laughs> I was in high school, so maybe your friend and my friend came from the same place. <laughs> <laughs> he told me he came from the planet of grass. It was just a big planet covered in grass. Yeah. Oh, wow. We are. Yeah, you can check with Phoebe if you're in touch with it. <laughs> I want to kind of start off with you talking about some history um, and uh, family and then move into questions to do with um, home and truth and justice. But like you come from a family of, of literature and language and story. Your mother was a storyteller and your father was a writer. Could you say a little bit about your family? 
Well, my mother is still a storyteller. I just came back from Vancouver on Sunday. And um, while I was there, my mom told me so many stories about my family that I had no idea about. Um, fascinating stories. And she'd move from story to story to story and had no time to breathe, no time to reflect, no time to think, no time to record. I was thinking, what is ha what is happening? How, how could I have not known all of this? Anyway, she's still a storyteller. Um, um, my father was a writer and a poet, um, and he died in 1982, and he credited his mother for inspiring his writing and thinking. And she was a, um, she composed songs and she, she was a dancer too. So the, mm -hmm. the business of storytelling and, you know, creativity runs in my family. Yeah. And Acholi is a word that we're going to hear a lot in conversation with you. Could you locate Acholi language, but also Acholi homeland within Uganda for us? Sure. Um, Acholi are people who are found in, whose homeland is in northern Uganda and what's now South Sudan. Um, and it's divided by the, the northern border of Uganda. Um, we're a Luo-speaking people. And... Uh, uh, quite a small population compared to the rest of the country. I don't think there are 3 million Ugandans, I mean, 3 million actually people from a country that's 30-something mm, million. So it's, yeah. a, it's a very small minority of people. Yeah, and Uganda has many languages, but Acholi is um, uh, an important one, and, and certainly you pay a lot of attention to it in speaking about Acholi language and Acholi yes. ways of thinking. In your yes. work. We're going to be yes. looking forward to talking about that. And sure. I, I do want to say also that uh, Acholi, it's a Luo language, but you can say Acholi is a language, Acholi is a land, and Acholi is the people. Yeah. Huh. For you, exile is an enormous part of your story. Exile in Kenya, um, uh, trips back to um, Uganda because of your father's work and the perception of his work by Idi Amin. I wonder if you could give us a uh, kind of a bit of the, the history about how that unfolded and ways within which that introduced enormous themes of exile to your life that you then paid attention to in your writing. Mm -hmm. um, I was born in exile. My father was already exiled by the person in power, um, Milton Obote, in the late 60s. So um, I never knew, I have never known what it is to to be born in a country that's your country. Um, and so the idea of home has always been fraught. Uh, when, when we were children in Kenya, my parents used to talk about home, which was a bit confusing because for us, home was the house we lived in. But we grew to, to find the distinction between house and home. Mm -hmm. um, eventually, when we went to Uganda, well, I, I think my dad tried to return to Uganda after Idi Amin was overthrown, and Idi Amin did not like his work either, either mm -hmm. so he had to stay out. So we returned to Uganda in 1980, and it was the same uh, strange feeling of being strange because we were Kenyan-born, well, some of us are, uh, which means you have a different accent, different way of being. And then people would say, where you come from? You say, well, I come from here. And well, no, you don't sound like us, you know. Um, and it's also been the same. I've lived in Canada for 30, 33 years now. And the question remains, where do you come from? Where do you come from? So it 
it's 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 very strange to always be foreign wherever you are but it's also a familiar mm. way of being for me yeah yeah and in all of this i hear you meditate on language um you wrote at one point my father was in exile because of his writing so my coming into the world was in the context of words having power mm -hmm. um, have you found words that that work for you when it comes to the question of home oh last week there was a a, a meme floating about um, on facebook and it was a quote by the Egyptian writer Nagib Mahfouz, Mahfouz Nagib. Um, and it says, and so I'm not even sure if it's true that it's a quote from him or not, but it says, home is where you cease to run. It's, it's a place where you cease to run from, something like that. And I remember being struck by that because it separates, the idea of home is now separated from place and um, I've moved to Kingston in Ontario two years ago, and um, it was a very strange new city. I've never been in a place like quite like this, um, and having lived in so many places, I wondered what it would be like to find a home and if we could find a home here. But recently, as I was saying earlier, I returned to from Vancouver. And I was relieved. I had this huge sense of, wow, I'm coming back home. And that mm. was a very strange sensation because I didn't know that I'd ever think about Kingston as home. And here mm. I am looking forward to being in our place with our stuff. And the, it's a smaller place. The, mind you, the winters are much harsher and the summers are much hotter. Mm. But it's it's now where we live. So now it's come. I've come to think of Kingston as home too. When did you begin to pay attention to the power of words? I'm like, I, I'm moved and uh, I've heard you say it before about, you know, returning to returning to Uganda, a place that had always been called home and then being asked, where's your accent from? Because you mm -hmm. had been living in Kenya. Um, was it was it that that began to pay attention to the question of words and language? Or did, was that already in you because of what had happened to your family? I think it was already uh, in, in our life. We already knew that to be a poet is not an easy thing. Mm. Um, and and we, we also understood, well, I did, that my father's being a poet had held him back in one way or another. Um, if he was at home in Uganda, perhaps his career might have taken off differently. Perhaps he would have... Mm lived longer maybe even, you know, had a better health or, or, or any of those. So I knew poetry was a very, um, could be a dangerous way of being in the world, mm. which was different from how I understood others understood poetry, which mm. is, you know, a pretty line and of, no, of little consequence. Mm. Um, yeah, so I, I, always, I always understood that, but I also knew, knew that the different kinds of poems and poetry and they're understood in various ways. So not all poems are dangerous, not all poets are dangerous, right? Yeah. Um, but some are. Mm. Do you think that that um, prepared you for a career as a poet yourself or did that um, keep you away from it for a while? <laughs> Having born in your family's story, uh, the kind of enormous consequences of a particular approach to poetry that, um, that your father took? I, I never intended, I never thought that I'd be a poet. 
as a, a career trajectory. I knew I wanted to do creative writing at mm. university. And my mom admonished me. She said, you know, um, get a real job, a real career, and you can write poetry on the side. And I suppose mm. she knew what she was talking about because she'd been mm. married to a poet who's, um, whose life was complicated because he was one. I, I, I like to say, and I should stop saying this, I like to say I sucked at everything else. <laughs> which is that I tried so many, I took so many different courses. I tried so many other ways of being in the world. I did so many different kinds of jobs. Um, but eventually it was being at school, being immersed in academia, teaching and writing were the things that I did best and enjoyed best. So I suppose I just found my way here. But it wasn't something that I had planned. Um, which is also why I suppose it's taken me um, five decades to get here. Yeah. Yeah. In a while, I'm going to ask you some questions about memory and remembering, Julie, but I am really curious before we do that about um, the experience of exile and diaspora, because those are literal experiences, physical experiences and and political experiences all wrapped into one. And you've spent a lot of time um, thinking about diaspora, diaspora within the African continent, diaspora across the globe, um, black diaspora, political diaspora and political exile. What are some of the things that you think are really important for anybody for whom these are, are theories or concepts without personal experience? What are some of the things that you think are really important for people to know and understand about diaspora and then particularly exile and diaspora? Mm. Oh, that's a big question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because it, it, uh, it presumes that I'd have any something <laughs> to say yeah. about that, to contribute to other people's understanding of it. And I'm not sure I do. I was going to say that it's a complicated way of belonging when you, mm. when you say, I come from, especially if you don't have a, a connection, say, you've never visited Ceres or you've never spent much time in the place where you come from, or maybe you don't speak the language. So what does the claim mean to come from? Mm. And sometimes you might say, um, my descendants, descendants, ancestors, my ancestors are from there. Um, therefore I am of that land. But what happens when the land doesn't recognize you or when the people of that land don't recognize you, do you still belong? Um, and, and I've really struggled with that question of belonging until I got to thinking, I don't have to belong in one place. Actually, it wasn't that I got to thinking it. A good friend of mine died in, in Vancouver and I was bereft uh, because I still had to go to work. I still had to continue with my life. And I wanted the world to stop because I really uh, mourned this woman. But she was buried in Vancouver. And I thought, wow, I can now claim Vancouver because one of my own is buried here on this land. And that was a, a shift for me. Um, and and I, when I extrapolate that to think about diasporans or exiles, the land is is has been contributed to 
by people who have lived in that place for a very long time. Just the physical sense of just the just their bodies, you know, they die, they're buried, they die, they're buried. No mm. matter where they came from, they become yeah. part of that land, right? Mm. So that claim to a place of belonging through the land becomes then complicated and fraught because they're those for whom their ancestors have been there forever too, right? They mm. also come from there. And so belonging becomes really, really complicated. But if you add exile to it, and then there's a knowledge that politically you're not wanted where you come from. Mm. And if you're not wanted where you come from and you're not accepted where you live, where do you go? Mm. How do you know your sense of self? How do you orientate yourself? Um, and if you add language to that, there are those, like my children, who have not been brought up in the language of their parents. Um, if you can't speak the language of your ancestors, and there's other people who like similar to that, yeah. can you make that claim? Or people like me, who speak some actually, but not deeply, not philosophically, can I make that claim? Or mm. anybody who speaks a language, I speak English, I teach English too, can I make the claim to being to Englishness through language? Mm -hmm. There's a cultural belonging because um, we taught to live in a language, so all the cultural references are in that language. But would the English accept me as one of their own because I speak it? It becomes really complicated to think about. Um, and I think, I suppose, what I'd offer is that exile, diaspora, um, complicates some terms that others don't think about, like belonging and language. My name is Padraig Tuma, and this is the Cory Miller Podcast. With me today is the poet and writer Julianne Okotbutek. Julie, you published a book called 100 Days, which is a book about a country neighboring to Uganda, but Rwanda, um, and counting down over 100 poems that go from 100 down to one, counting down um, in a kind of a clock in a way that's remembering and um, imagining and reflecting and thinking about genocide and thinking about national trauma. I wonder if you could say a little bit about that project and then bring in some of your curiosity about truth and bearing witness um, and feeling in, into that whole project. Um, let me begin by saying that that book is not about Rwanda. It's about memory and it's about what we might remember or forget 20 years after a genocide has taken place. And the genocide I was thinking about was the 1994 genocide in Rwanda, um, which even by saying it that way, I'm picking a, a, a particular way of talking about that time in 1994. I am not from Rwanda, but I know that there's been debates of how to call what happened. So some people say you, it's properly called the genocide against the Tutsi in Rwanda, right? Um, I, I was interested in 2014 that 20 years had gone by and what I knew about Rwanda was mostly in terms of a book 
was mostly by an American Jewish American writer called Philip Gorovich. And um, I think the title of the book is I Regret to Inform You. Uh, and it's part of a longer phrase. And it was interesting to me that, um, I, I, and I'd been doing some graduate work on memory and forgetting at the time. I was starting to write my dissertation and think about it. But what did we who are from that part of the, the world, East Africa, have to say about what was happening in our neighborhood? In 1994, a war had been raging in my own homeland in Acholi since 1986, and it was nowhere near the world headline. So I knew my homeland was already on fire for a long time in a war between the government of Uganda and the Lord's Resistance Army. Mm -hmm. And in 1994, the genocide against the Bosnians was happening. The genocide in Bosnia was happening and in Darfur and then Rwanda. So I remember thinking so much shit is happening at the same time. And 20 years later, what's the responsibility of those of us who are from those homelands to talk about what we remember and what we forget, given that since, um, think about the, the Rwanda genocide, most of what we knew and talked about and reflected on was the terrible, terrible, terrible um, details about say what happened in those 100 days. But I wanted to think about everyday people. What might they think about? What might they sound like? Not think about, but what might they sound like? And so um, in April of that year, beginning of April, which is usually when people start to think about the commemoration of the 100 days, I saw a post on Facebook by a Kenyan American artist called Wangeshimutu, and she had posted an image of a photograph of a woman holding a sign with a word with 100 on it. And I understood immediately when I saw it that she was going to count down. I don't know how I knew this, um, but I wrote to her and I said, "Can we count down together? Uh, I'm a poet. You're an artist. We'll just do this uh, together." So she said yes, and every day she posted a photo, every day I posted a poem through 100 days. Mm. Um, and then when I finished, I thought, now what? It can, does it mean that the war ended, the genocide stopped happening after 100 days? It became really complicated to think about the work of numbers. Um, mm. You count to 100 and you remember 100 days, but of course, of course, it goes without saying that this went on for many 100 days, many. Mm -hmm. And we are still in those 100 days, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So time became just a really messed up way of thinking about people's experiences. And I also wanted to write poems that might capture a sense of what every day looks like. And, and mind you, I was also thinking about Acholi. I wasn't just thinking, I've not been to Rwanda even. I was, I was just thinking, I was thinking about Darfur, I was thinking about Bosnia, I was thinking about everywhere where the world was in flames. You have a poem, Julie, that goes through like an A to Z, it's mm -hmm. like a, a poem that a child might learn, you know, A is for apple, B is for that. Mm -hmm. um, but you go through the names of places all around the world that have known atrocity and many of them 
new atrocity during the 90s. And so you create this kind of sibling family of place names in a poem that lots of us would have recognized the structure um, in the context of something that we'd have known as children. But you kind of present the, the adult version that knows war. And of course, children know that too. That's part of the atrocity of it. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's a, a kind of a solidarity, but maybe an accusation. And there's a there's a, a, a difficult innocence in the poem, too, because you think people shouldn't know this of any age. But do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And each letter um, makes it a unique uh, experience of, of whatever memory of war or difficulty there is. But together, it's so much bigger. So, so much bigger, right? And this, if we think about the the Roman alphabet, A to Z, as the, the letters that encapsulates all our ways of writing, of course, I know there are other alphabets, but let, let's just think about this one. Um, then all the words and all the ideas are captured from A to Z in these languages. And so are all the places and so are all the memories. Mm. Right? Uh, but I wanted to write about what it might be to mean to think about 100 days without going through the details of um, of the gory details of war. Yeah. Yeah, because there's, there's parts of the book where you are just recounting something that happens between two people or you're recounting a memory or looking at the sky. Mm-hmm. Um, ways within which you are, um, as you said, in parallel to the kind of atrocity of the form of 100 days, you're looking at experiences of memory and perhaps um, asking why is it that certain gory details, horrific and forensically true as they are, are the ones that are remembered in the public stage when you're, you're amplifying other ones alongside. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and you know, those, those terrible, terrible things that happened, it's not that, it's not that we don't remember them by not mentioning them. It's that yeah. we are not def- completely defined and only defined by the terrible things that ha- happened to us. Mm-hmm. We are also people before the war and we will be people after the war. And people are people beyond what have the terrible things that happened to them. So is remembering then also about remembering who you are rather than just what happened? Right, who we are as people. So it's mm-hmm. a human way of being in the world. We're people mm. with feelings, we can see the sky, we notice a broken pencil, uh, we remember the touch of somebody, right? Yeah. What is it that you know about yourself and, and your call to, to remember here? And do you find that role difficult as you think about the 100 Days book as well as some of your other work too? Because you, you seem to be compelled to and drawn to matters of great political importance, often to do with questions to do with um, land and uh, remembering and uh, amplifying brilliance and amplifying things that other people might wish to forget. Um, well, what's that experience of having that vocation of poet like for you? Mm-hmm. I think I've come to understand uh, poetry as a as a difficult and important work to do mm. for some people it's a hobby for something for some people it's a pleasure uh, for some people it's a way to escape or a way to write about something pleasurable maybe for me it's not um, and I say this 
because I remember not that long ago, a friend of mine was ill in, in Vancouver and some people got together and said, let's create a small chapbook of poems to give her to, to feel better, like a super duper uh, get well card. And, and so we were all asked to contribute a love poem or a, and I didn't have any, not even one. And that really struck me. And I had to sit and write a love poem for someone to feel better. <laughs> that was very, very weird. And I thought, wow, am I just so angry all the time looking for the hard things to write about? Um, but, <laughs> but I also remember that um, during the pandemic, when the pandemic first broke in 2020, I thought to myself, ooh, now I can sit and do another 100 days project. Mm. But that quickly became apparent to me that it's going to be so many 100 days. But I, I wanted to, to use every day as a moment to think about the news, what we were hearing filtered back to us, and how I could memorialize that moment through poetry. Mm. And so for me, poetry is a tool to articulate or to document what's happening around me. And that's often what's interesting uh, politically or socially. Um, I, when I do it in a poetic way, I feel better about what the work that I'm doing. Um, so it's not really to do with my family, although, although I can say that that's where I got the, the idea to do it. Mm -hmm. um, but my insistence on it, I think, is mine. Um, yeah. You made the it way that own. I use every to, yeah, mm -hmm. in the way that I use every day to to write. Mm -hmm. <laughs> My name is Padre Gotuma, and you're listening to the Karamila podcast. With me today is Ugandan poet and writer and teacher Julianne Okotbitek. Julie, I'd like to talk to you about notions of of justice and peace and reconciliation. Because much and all, as you do with truth, you also bring yourself with questions of curiosity and uncovering and sometimes critique and pushing to these terms like justice and peace and reconciliation. I wonder if you could say a few things um, about those. Like you said at one point, reconciliation is the only goal is a noble idea, but it diminishes the experiences of the survivors, especially the harsh situation imposed by the oppressors and often has been highlighted by others, there was no prior relationship to begin with that is worthwhile reconciling. Hmm. I was thinking, where did I write that? Where did I write that? Well, I think that comes from um, a chronology of compassion, I think. Um, and that was a piece I did, if I recall right, in 2012. Um, so I was, that uh, at that time, I was thinking about my homeland, Northern Uganda, still embroiled in this horrific war, um, but at this, uh, but but things were changing. I think the war in actually in Uganda had stopped, but had moved on to to what's now South Sudan and to Central African Republic. So and and the Congo. So people were still suffering, um, and there were debates about being brought people being brought to justice for what they had done. Um, people were being arrested. Some people were being welcomed home. Um, thousands upon thousands of young people had been kidnapped and forced to fight in the war. Um, thousands and thousands had died because of the war and 
from the effects of the war being displaced and, and all that kind of thing. So this call for, for justice often meant that um, in, the, in the formal sense, the Western legal tradition often meant that somebody would be accused of something taken through the court process and possibly uh, incarcerated. But at the same time, many of these people, well, not many, I should say, the folks had been kidnapped and forced into atrocities. So they were at the same time victims of the war, at the same time they were perpetrators of violence on other people. Mm-hmm. But it was more important, I think, for Acholi people to think about peace. And so all of a sudden there was, um, whereas most of us think about uh, no justice, no peace. And so we link peace and justice together for in a truly the debate was either justice or peace. Because in, if you have your home and one child is a victim and the other child is a perpetrator, what is this Western form of justice that demands that one child be harmed for good and the other child be incarcerated for good? There's no peace there, right? Mm. And in our traditional form of making peace after violence, it's always about bringing people together through their rituals and and discussions and negotiations so that afterwards the hurt is acknowledged, but peace is the more important thing. And so it made me think about justice as an exercise for thinking about how to deal with violence, but it's not always targeting peace. Mm. Um, and then I, not, not, not subsequently, but I was also thinking about um, Canadian poet Nobesi Philip, mm. in, particularly in her book Zong, which is a very, very powerful uh, text on thinking about what does justice mean for people who are enslaved and thrown overboard a ship. Um, When the owners of that ship landed it in Liverpool, I think it was, and claimed insurance money for lost property. Yeah, so Mm. there might be laws for insurance and and lost property. But there was no law for the people who had been thrown overboard, who are themselves were forcibly kidnapped, right? Mm. And she wrote a whole book, think, reflecting and thinking about, about this, and also debating about what it means to do this book in English, which would not have been the language of the people who are enslaved. Mm. But at the same time, as a descendant of enslaved people, that was the only language she has to work with. Mm. And so that connection between language and law and justice and peace became a very murky but interesting way to think about what a poet can do. Mm. So for me, it's become using poetry as a place to, and the page, right? The, The page you work on to think of how to dismantle ideas of what we know about what is justice. Or what yeah. is peace, right? Mm-hmm. Or what does language do? And if we want to tell a different way of understanding something, must we rely on the same rules of the language? And poetry allows us to do things 
differently enough that we, we don't have to rely on those rules of language. Mm. It seems to me that you're often looking for different ways into these concepts through language, through poetry, through art and through political critique as well, in order to say the, the thing that's being put across needs to be much more uh, complicated. Uh, deliberately. You've written critically about public attention to uh, Northern Uganda during a particular period of time, about 10 years ago. I wonder if you could say a little bit about what your public critique was, Julie. Hmm. Oh, I think I've been railing against um, how we understand the war in Northern Uganda um, versus how it's been told to us and through the media or through academia and, and other another forms of sharing knowledge. Um, I have learned a lot and I continue to learn from the women, some women who survived that war. And they're organized in a group called the Women's Advocacy Network. Um, many of them were forced, were kidnapped and forced to fight and then they returned. And many of them returned with children who they had been forced to have while in captivity. And these women really changed the way I think about uh, what happened and what's important to think about. Um, as as folks will probably know, after many afterwards, there's this idea of uh, reconciliation and making peace, and sometimes uh, governments will offer uh, resettlement packages as they did in Uganda for those who returned. But at one point, it was only men who got. Um, so you you give in your guns. And then you might get a horse, some money, maybe a piece of land, some place, some way of you uh, that allows you to start. But the women yeah. were offered nothing, hmm. nothing. They came with children and they were offered nothing. Mind hmm. you, many of them didn't have guns to give in, yeah. but they were offered nothing. And then the other thing hmm. was that they were given a document to... Um, to indicate that they had been, I don't know, for lack of a better word, forgiven by the government, you know? Mm. <laughs> and, and what was very clear from these women was that where was the government when we were being kidnapped? Who should be doing the forgiving? <laughs> Whose responsibility is it to take care of all of us, if it's not the government, why should some people be given resettlement packages and some not, right? Mm. And so if we relied on, on the academia and media to make get us to understand what was happening, we would not know that these women challenged the government, went to the parliament and said, we also need resettlement packages, right? And they found the language and they found the, you know, the wherewithal to speak out and speak up. Yeah. Uh, and mm. they organize themselves and they're supporting themselves. And, and they just make me think differently about how we come through war. Yeah. So they're, they're my, my big teachers, I should say. Your most recent book, Julie, A is for Choli, um, starts off with a certain um alphabet poem as well where a is for everything <laughs> and and it's yeah. is for everything i wonder if you could read a few of those poems and then talk to us about some of the layers about what you're doing um in that okay thank you anacholi alphabet a is for acholi achol the black one and the black one 
A is for the apple that was lobbed at us from a garden far away and exploded in our compound. A is for me, Adam, my grandmother's oldest brother. This means I can trace my lineage back to this first man. This means that the earth is young, or as I believed as a young child, my great uncle was that old. B is for Acholi, that's who we are. B is for the floor smeared in cow dung. B is for the floor it gave, beautitudes and other fables. C is for Acholi. C is for stories like floors with gave. C is for Acholi and British and Canadian ID papers. Cartography, the trace of the arc of the apple to this point in time. D is for Acholi. D is for the November fog and endless rain. D is for brown Vancouver August. Devotion to family, to self, to nation, and sometimes of another to us. One day, as we waited for the bus to Kampala, a very tall, very dark, white clothing, red eyes, sorry. One day, as we waited for the bus to Kampala, a man, very tall, very dark, white clothing, red eyes. There is your bus to Kampala, he pointed. We ran, ran, ran. And after we'd settled inside, our mother asked if any of us had thanked him in our rush. We looked back at the crowds. How does the presence of such a man disappear? E is for a trolley. E is for the human voice in the violin. E is for the catch of the Acholi dance. Externality, a condition of always. My mother tells us how her grandfather always told her everything I do, I do for you. My mother tells us of when she was newly arrived in Canada, how a man approached her and asked her if she was the granddaughter of Mohammed Lagara. You wear his face, he told her, something like that. As a boy, this man was the beneficiary of a kindness from my mother's grandfather. All this time later, the generosity of Mohammed Lagara would be part of a welcome to a country full of people who had no memory of who we were. F is for a chole. F is for small heaps of mango for sale by the roadside. F is for small tables of homemade brew also for sale by the roadside. Fixation on the thing that is always the thing in these parts. The memo no employee can wear their hair in braids at work. G is for a trolley. G is for dead poets and dead singers. G is for the music holding words we hang on to. Gauntlet. We only sing the songs we recall from childhood. How we keep ourselves tethered with songs that our own children didn't know. H is for a trolley. H is for serendipity. H is for the five-syllable words that mean nothing most days. Heresy. Decades now, we celebrate Thanksgiving. Remember our delight when the Safeway turkey came with mashed potatoes and cranberry sauce. I is for a chole. I is for the arc of the apple lobbed at us from the Garden of Eden. I 
is for the ark or that apple. Inconstancy. How else are we still here? We bend to your traditions. We hold Thanksgiving dinner. We forget that in fought in particular held slaves. But we remember that Samuel Baker's wife was named after the moon because of her white skin. J is for a choli. J is for hazy, yellowy traffic lights coming through fog. J is for the reach of claws into your chest. Justice for who, when, where. That's it. I find myself, as I listen to you read those, and, you know, J is for a choli, I, I, I hear myself saying that a choli is for J which is that, you know, land and language and place is um, going everywhere through you with a choli into wherever it is that you are in the world, Julie. Mm. Mm. Um, you know, I've, I've been thinking about what this book is about. And I, <laughs> I think I'm coming to think that it's about me trying to locate myself and what it means to be an actually person. Because... So somebody born in exile who's never lived at home in actually land for any um, for any proper time. What does it mean to say I am an actually person? And so for me, it just seemed to be that everything that I am is actually. This is where I became from, even mm -hmm. though I, I don't live there. Um, even though my actually is limited and broken, even though I don't look like or sound like I'm from there. <laughs> Everything is for actually. Yeah. Juliana Kotbidek, thank you very much for coming on the Corrymeela podcast. Thanks, Project. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Corrymeela podcast. With me today was Juliana Kotbidek. Her most recent books are Song and Dread. And A is for Acholi, published under the name Otonia J. Ogotpitek. We've got links to those in the show notes. The Corimela podcast is created in partnership between Corimela and Fanfan. It's produced by Emily Rowling, with mixing, editing, and theme music by Fra Sands at Safe Place Studios, and presented by me, Padrigo Tuma. The podcast is generously funded by the Henry Luce Foundation and the Community Relations Council Northern Ireland and the Irish Government's Reconciliation Fund. Thanks to them and thanks to Coramila's friends and supporters and thanks to you for listening. Other poems or books or films or works of art that you have turned to again and again? Absolutely. The, mm. one, the book that is... a. Uh haunted me the most is Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness. Mm. Um, yeah, and the Bible, God knows why. That was <laughs> Heart of Darkness in the Bible, God knows yeah. why. <laughs> yeah. In, in some ways, Julie, we've been talking about this the whole time, but could you tell us about a time when one of your national identities felt important to you? Oh, yeah. When... Um, in the recent uh, declaration by the government that uh, homosexuality was going to be, was again criminalized, I felt really ashamed, really, really, truly ashamed uh, because I've been doing all this work to, to get to understand 
us humans, as people with potential and rights to be in the world. And there is a country where my ancestors were born that is criminalizing people's way of, of living. Um, and it added to the, the story about Ugandans as the Lord Resistance, Resistance Army, Ugandans as Idi Amin, and now Ugandans as people who hate gay people. That, mm. that really makes me feel awful and ashamed and angry. And is there a very short story you can tell us about a time when you said something that surprised you? Last week, uh, somebody said that I told her about complicated joy, and I thought, what? I don't remember, <laughs> but she says she thinks about complicated joy and thinks about me. <laughs> <laughs> well, in the name of complicated joy, thanks very much, Julie. <laughs>